Part 1 of Chapter 4 of Uncle Joe's Stories by Edward Natchbull Hugesson. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recorded by Allison Hester. Chapter 4 Cat and Dog To live like cat and dog has long been proverbial as a description of a state of life in which quarrels and bickerings are of frequent occurrence. No one, however, as far as I am aware, has ever followed to its sources the proverb which is so familiar to us all, nor has anyone attempted to explain the reason of the antagonistic spirit which undoubtedly prevails between these domestic animals. Its prevalence is certain, its consequences not seldom unfortunate, and many a once happy household has been rendered miserable by its existence. Animated by a sincere desire to acquire information, which might be at once interesting to myself and instructive, as well as beneficial to my fellow creatures, I have spared no pains to discover the truth upon this all-important subject. And if I can succeed in placing that truth clearly and dispassionately before the world, I shall feel, and I think I may cherish the feeling without exposing myself to the charge of presumption, that I have not lived in vain. Whatever rumors may, in a less enlightened age, have prevailed upon the subject, I believe that there is no doubt as to the origin of the unfortunate difference which first caused hostility to become deeply rooted in the breasts of the canine and feline races. Some have supposed it to have sprung from certain acts of favoritism displayed by the human race towards one or the other of the two species of animals. Others have come to the conclusion that inbred and natural wickedness gave rise to the evil, whilst others again have started different but equally unsound theories. The true reason, the real beginning, the cause and foundation of the whole thing, is to be found in the words of the old song, so familiar to nursery people. Hey diddle diddle, the cat and the fiddle, the cow jumped over the moon, the little dog laughed to see such a sport, and the dish ran away with the spoon. The author of this ballad is unknown, but it has always been vastly popular with the race of cats, who see in it at once a tribute to the musical genius of their people, as being identified with the violin, vulgarly herein called fiddle, and a recognition of their supremacy and superiority over other animals, inasmuch as the cat is mentioned first, before either cow or dog, fiddle or moon, and is evidently pointed out as the chief personage celebrated by the rhyme. On the other hand, dogs have never liked the verse. They directly and positively object to the precedence given to the cat. They dispute altogether the statement about the cow and the moon as being improbable, if not palpably false. And further, they say, if the laughter of the little dog is intended to refer to this occurrence, it is a reflection upon the gravity and decorum of the dog's race, whilst, if it is to be referred to the last line of the verse, it displays their representative as treating with unworthy levity that which, as far as the dish is concerned, was either an unlawful elopement or a pitiful theft. At one time, when there was still a hope that the enmity of the two races might be appeased, and a better state of being of things brought about, a joint committee of dogs and cats sat upon the question, in order to submit a report to the great council of animals, which might form the basis of an amicable settlement. 
a lengthy and acrimonious discussion ensued. The cats claimed precedence and advanced many arguments to prove their superiority over their opponents. They boldly purred out their declaration to the effect that nature, custom, and all the evidence at command was clearly in their favor. They cited the opinions of mankind as given in many books, speeches, wise proverbs, and witty sayings. They called to mind how that, in the case of heavy rain, men always remarked that it rained cats and dogs, placing, as they averred, the superior animal of the two first, when it was necessary to mention both, and the inferior one last. Moreover, many other things in the history of mankind denoted the prevalence and undoubted predominance of the same opinion. One of their favorite names for their daughters was Kate, spelt commonly with a C when given in full, Catherine, and evidently a name adopted from that of Cat, and affording another implied recognition of the general superiority of the feline race. Then, said they, look at the way in which dogs are habitually spoken of with contempt, and their name used as a reproach. If one man call another a dog, it is held to be an insult. Tell anyone that such and such a person has a hang-dog look about him, and it is known you intend to convey the idea of his being a rascal, only fit to be strung up at once. If a man is tiresome in argument, his companions term him dogmatic. If he is of an obstinate temper and sullen disposition, he is frequently called dogged. Whilst on crossing the channel, a person who suffers from the malady of the sea is said to be as sick as a dog, and when mankind desire to express the failure in life, the ruin, the abject and miserable condition of one of their own race, there is no more common or proverbial expression than that he has gone to the dogs. All these and many other instances they quoted as bearing upon the great question of the superiority of cats to dogs, and in fact establishing the same beyond any reasonable doubt. The dogs, having listened to these observations and arguments with an attention which was only equaled by their indignation, advanced their counter-arguments with great force and evinced much learning and erudition. They took a preliminary objection to the evidence founded upon the manners and habits of human beings, avowing that even if they admitted every instance which had been adduced, they might appeal to the general practice of man and the greater trust and reliance which he habitually placed in the dog, as utterly negativing the supposition that he had ever intended to imply the superiority of the feline tribe by any casual proverb or familiar saying. When was a cat employed to tend sheep? What keeper would trust a cat to do the office of a retriever and to watch the young birds? To what cat was ever committed the custody of a house? Or when was a kennel provided for a cat to serve the purpose for which only a mastiff or some similar specimen of the noble breed of dogs was fit? All this forbade the supposition that men preferred cats before dogs or esteemed them at all equally either as useful or ornamental animals. But if they considered the arguments brought forward by the cats, one by one with logical acuteness, they would not find a single argument which was susceptible of an entirely different construction from that put upon it by the cat orators. For instance, the expression that it rained cats and dogs clearly signified, 
if taken for more than a colloquial expression to convey the meaning that it rained hard, that the heavens from which the rain came desired to get rid of the inferior animals first, and that it was only when the cats had been got rid of that a possible superfluity of dogs was taken into consideration. The name Kate, which, by the way, was the abbreviation of Catherine with a K, and really had nothing to do with the name Catherine with a C, was not derived from anything to do with cats or kittens either. And it was much the same as if the dogs on their part were to claim affinity with the ancient Doge of Venice, or to pretend to unwanted holiness, because most of the good books of the early church were written or translated by the monks into dog Latin. Again, as to one man insulting another by calling him a dog, that was not exactly the case. Dogs did not speak with human tongues, and therefore, when a man was called a dumb dog, it was only implied that he was as dumb as a dog as far as the human tongue was concerned. Dogs, moreover, did not pretend to universal goodness. There were good dogs and bad dogs, mad dogs and sad dogs. When men wished to bestow praise upon one of themselves, they constantly called him a jolly dog and if they sometimes called one of their kind a cur, they alluded to an inferior species of dog, and in fact acknowledged the superiority of the canine race by the very fact that they selected it as the race with which alone they could fairly compare one of themselves. The hang-dog argument also told directly against, instead of for, the cat. What did it mean? Why, that any man who was a villain and a rascal looked as if he would actually be ready to hang a dog, and such a crime would, in fact, constitute him both rascal and villain at once. What better proof could be afforded of the high estimation in which dogs were held by men? The dogs further said that the cats had attributed a bad meaning to the word dogmatic, but that it was also susceptible of good interpretation, being derived from a Greek word, dogma a settled opinion, and signifying one who, knowing the truth, and having confidence in the opinion at which he had duly arrived, had the courage of his convictions, and stuck to them gallantly, which was certainly no reproach either to dog or man. The word dogged also might of course be taken to mean sullen or sulky, but its primary signification was rather pertinacious, and it really meant that steadiness with which an honest dog pursued his course through life, yielding neither to bribes nor temptations from whatever quarter they may chance to come. With regard to the expression, sick as a dog, they stated it was scarcely more commonly used among men than the equivalent expression, sick as a cat, and they forbore, out of delicacy, to advance arguments upon so disagreeable a point. It bore but little upon the question, and they might as well say that men hated cats, because they were subjected to catalepsy, or that they evinced their dislike to the feline portion of creation by calling a misfortune a catastrophe, a bad cough a catar, and a disease in the eye a cataract. The last allusion of the cats, namely, that to a man spoken of as having gone to the dogs, was the subject of a long and able argument on the part of the latter, who principally contended that the real meaning of the phrase, duly considered and wisely interpreted, was quite different from that which their adversaries supposed, 
inasmuch as no man, being ruined and miserable, would go to persons or beings who were held in contempt or were in disgrace. What was really meant was that when a man had really failed in everything, and, being penniless and wretched, found neither support, sympathy, nor consolation from those of his own species, he went where kindness, good faith, honesty, and charity were ever to be found, and sought among the true-hearted and friendly race of dogs that kindly welcome and reception which had been denied to him by his own people. It was a tribute, indeed, paid to the dog nature by mankind, and nothing of the sort had ever been said with regards to cats, who were well known to be much more likely to scratch than to comfort the unfortunate. The arguments so forcibly advanced by the dogs made very little impression on the cats who were upon the joint committee. There was a good deal of purring, setting up of backs, meowing, and I fear a little spitting, but they listened with tolerable attention, and then replied in the same style as before. They mentioned a bad, useless fish, which was called the dogfish, on account, they said, of its bad qualities. The dog days, so-called because hotter and more unbearable than any other days in the summer, they drew attention to the fact that loose, bad rhyme was said to be doggerel, and that an inferior kind of flower was termed dog rose. The dogs rejoined with spirit that men called a depository for dead bodies a catacomb, a disagreeable insect a cat a pillar, and that any one who was made use of by another to obtain his own ends was contemptuously designated a cat's paw. A debate carried on in this spirit could clearly lead to no satisfactory result and the end of the matter was that the committee separated without having been able to agree to any report. The consequence naturally was that each race continued to regard the other with suspicion and aversion, and that the relations between the two became, and seemed likely to remain, exceedingly unpleasant. This version of the matter was given me by an animal whose veracity is above suspicion, being none other than old Jenny the donkey. She was a most learned antiquarian, and had lived to be a very advanced age before she had finally settled her opinion upon the merits of the question. But, being an ass of well-balanced mind, and entirely impartial between the two races, I believe that she fairly stated the arguments on both sides and that her accuracy may be thoroughly relied on. She went on to relate to me chronicles of the past, which I found most interesting, and it is with a view to the better understanding by those who care to read them of those chronicles that I have ventured to give the above preliminary facts upon the authority of this venerable quadruped. There was a time, she said, when dogs and cats were certainly upon better terms than at the present day. It was a happier time for both, she had no doubt. But still, being but a donkey, and very humble, she did not wish to put forward her own opinion as by any means conclusive upon that or any other point. She could not recollect the time when the two races were positively upon friendly terms, but she believed such a time to have existed, and that within the memory of ravens, if not of asses. There was a curious legend which had been told her by a tinker's donkey, 
who had been a great traveller and knew more than most of his kind, though there was, as a rule, much more knowledge among donkeys than men supposed. This particular donkey, however, had seen and learned in his travels a great deal more than many men, who, when they travel abroad, only seem to try how far they can go, and when they arrive at a city, live with their own fellow countrymen as much as they can, import their own method of life into foreign countries, instead of living as the people of the country do, and come home again with a very small addition to the knowledge with which they started. The Tinker's Donkey, being of a very different cast of character, and much given to careful and attentive observation of all he saw in the various places he visited, always brought home a vast deal of useful information, with which he never refused to enliven his brother asses as they enjoyed a friendly bray over their thistles. And it was during one of these long journeys of his that he picked up the legend which he told old Jenny, and which she generously imparted to me. At a remote period of history, no matter exactly when, and no matter exactly where, perfect love and harmony existed between the two great races of dog and cat. There was neither jealousy nor rivalry between them, and indeed, why should there have been such at any period of time? Dogs have ever preferred bones, or portions of the carcass of slaughtered animals, to any other food, whilst to cats, the flesh of the mouth, disdained as a rule by the canine species, and the tender breast of a newly-fledged bird form more attractive feasts. True it is that both races are fond of milk, but there is nothing in that single similarity of taste to excite ill-feeling and bitterness, and no dog ever clashed with the love of the cat for fish, nor have cats the same partiality for biscuits which some of the other race have frequently displayed. Then again, their pursuits in life are of a somewhat different character, those of the dog being more varied than those of the feline species. The sheep-dog guards with vigilance the flock entrusted to his care. The foxhound follows his prey with keen scent and unfailing ardor. The greyhound stretches his lanky form in eager pursuits of the unfortunate hare. The mastiff, seated in front of his kennel in the backyard, warns the inmates of the house of the approach of beggars or persons of doubtful character. The pug-dog, the terrier, the Pomeranian all have their separate employment in varied uses, and none of which does a cat seek to share, and with none of which does she ever wish to interfere. The cat, on the other hand, has amusements and occupations to a great extent peculiar to herself. She loves to bask in the sun, upon the window-sill, if such be available, on fine days, and in wet or cold weather, to nestle snugly upon the hearth-rug. When she goes out, it is not to run here and there and everywhere, after the fearless and sometimes intrusive manner of the dog. She prefers to steal quietly and leisurely along, placing her velvety feet softly upon the ground, and peering round on each side of her, to see that the country is secure. Crawling along the top of a wall, or creeping up the stern of a tree, she strives to capture the unwary bird, who may afford her sport and amusement first, and a meal afterwards. Or, seated demurely in some corner of a room, or near some tree, where mice frequent, 
she does not object to watch patiently, whilst minutes and hours pass away, in the hope of at last finding an opportunity to pounce upon her favourite victim. With all this, no dog has any reason to interfere, and none has ever attempted to rival the cat in the pursuit of a bird or a mouse. Again, dogs are more apt to attach themselves to the persons of men or women. Cats more readily become attached to the places in which they have lived, so that, once for all, if we consider the nature, the character, and the habits of these two great races, we shall, I am confident, come to the conclusion that there can be no real cause for their natural enmity, but that, in the great scheme of creation, they were intended to be upon as friendly and harmonious terms as was certainly the case at the time of which we now speak. Such were the reflections of Jenny, and I am inclined to endorse them all, and to think that I see the confirmation of their truth in the legend which I am about to tell as she told to me. It chanced that at this time a worthy couple possessed an animal of each sort, of which they were extremely fond. The dog was a handsome, black, curly fellow, of what particular breed I don't know, but this description of him sounds as if he was a Romney Marsh retriever or something of the sort. The cat was a tortoise shell, and one of the most perfect specimens of her kind, with glossy fur, elegantly shaped body, and tail like a fox's brush, which swept the ground as she walked. Jenny did not know the names of the worthy couple who owned these animals, and in fact, I have noticed that, in most of the stories which animals have told me from time to time, men and women are made to play a very subordinate part, and are indeed, for the most part, considered as altogether inferior beings by the excellent animals of and by whom the stories are told. Thus, in the present instance, although the good ass knew perfectly well that the dog's name was Rover, and the cat's Effie, she knew no more than an ignorant calf might have done in the names of the people with whom they lived. Nay, if I remember rightly, her expression was that some people lived in and kept the house in which Rover and Effie dwelt, so that very likely the donkey, and perhaps the animals themselves, considered that the premises belonged to themselves, and that the man and woman were merely lodgers on sufferance. And very likely, as a matter of fact, this is the actual view entertained by many of our animals, horses, dogs, cats, possibly even pigs and chickens, at the present day, if we did not know it. Perhaps it is as well that we do not, as we might consider our supremacy challenged, and our rights invaded, and this might make us less kind to the poor animals, which would be very sad. I should not wonder, however, if it was the truth for I am sure that our servants, or some of them, have firmly rooted convictions that our houses and everything in them are at least as much, if not more, theirs than ours, and some of us give in to them very much as if we thought so too. So I do not see why the four-legged creatures, as well as the two-legged, should not think the same thing, and perhaps they do. Rover and Effie, as I have said, lived in this house, which, to put the matter in a way not likely to be offensive to anybody, was also inhabited by an old couple, I mean a man and his wife, because, of course, a couple might, standing alone, mean a couple of ducks, or a couple of fowls, or rabbits, or anything else of the kind. But it was a man and his wife, 
and they had no children, and they were very fond of the dog and cat, and petted them both exceedingly. They passed very happy lives, having very little to trouble themselves about, and being possessed of a comfortable home and plenty of agreeable neighbors. Rover and Effie used to walk out together, and were for some time, as most of their respective races were, the very best of friends. Neither of them would have suffered a strange dog or cat to breathe a syllable against the other, and in their tastes, thoughts, and actions, they were as much allied as was possible under the circumstances. Things continued in this happy condition until an old weasel, who lived in the immediate neighborhood, cast his envious and malicious eye upon the two friends and determined it possible to interrupt their amicable relations. He had his own reasons for so doing. The family of weasels, though of ancient lineage and old blood, had never been considered as particularly respectable. In fact, they had always been a set of errant scamps. The rats and rabbits complained bitterly of their intrusive habits, and extremely disliked their abominable practice of entering the holes used by other animals, and carrying blood and murder into homes that were otherwise peaceful and contented. The hens also raised their homely cackle in the same strain, and counting egg-sucking as among the worst of crimes, brought heavy charges against the weasels on that account. In fact, no one had a good word for the little animals, except indeed their cousins, the stoats, and some of the unclean sorts of birds to wit, the jay, the magpie, and the carrion crow, who themselves lived chiefly by thieving. The weasel had a great jealousy of the cat, because she interfered with him in the matter of rats, mice, and small birds, to all of which he was partial, and he also saw in the dog a rival as regarded rabbits. Whilst the two remained in such close alliance, he thought that if they were able to wield a power which, although not actively exerted against himself, was little likely to be ever used in his favor and he therefore resolved to lessen that power if he possibly could by sowing the seeds of discord between the hitherto friendly animals but clever as he was the weasel racked his brains in vain for a long time he could think of nothing which would affect his object and could satisfy himself with no plan by which he might approach the two animals with that intent it would not indeed have been hard for him to have entered the house by the means open to him namely a drain or a rat's hole of which there were several but should he do so he ran the greatest risk of having his intentions mistaken and of suddenly falling a victim to one of the very two animals with whom though not from any kindly feeling he wished to communicate the same fear prevented his accosting them during their walks for he could not tell but that they might turn upon him and seize him before he could escape Direct communication, then, appeared to be out of the question, and he accordingly resolved to seek a confederate, through whom he might perchance accomplish his wicked ends. So he went to a neighboring magpie, knowing the love of meddling which characterizes that class of birds, and sought her aid in his scheme. The magpie was a very weary and cunning bird, and would not trust herself within Paul's length of the weasel for although she knew that, happily for herself, she was not a morsel which even a weasel could eat with relish, yet she was also well aware of the bloodthirsty nature of the animal, 
and thought it better not to expose him to the temptation of getting her neck into his mouth. So she sat up in the old hawthorn tree and chattered away to herself, whilst the little animal came underneath and tried to attract her attention. When at last she condescended to see him, she would not enter upon business for some time, but like many persons who, not being blameless themselves, are very ready to blame other people, chattered away to him for a good five minutes upon the subject of his general bad behavior, and read him a lesson upon morality, coupled with a homily upon the sin of thieving, which would have come admirably from the beak of a respected rook, but was very ill-placed in that of a notorious bad liver and evil-doer like the magpie. The weasel, however, keeping his object steadily in view, heard her remarks with a great apparent politeness, although, as a matter of fact, her advice, like that which many better people give, both in and out of season, went in at one of his ears and out at the other, and produced not the smallest effect upon his future conduct. When her chatter came at last to an end, he unfolded the nature of his business, and asked her counsel and assistance in the matter. Now the magpie was by no means friendly to the dog and cat, having an idea that they were better off in their worldly affairs than she was, which is always a sufficient cause for evil-minded people to dislike others. So she had no objection at all to enter upon a scheme which might annoy and injure them, and indeed her natural love of mischief would have prompted her to do so, had she had no other feeling in the matter. Having always, however, an eye to the main chance, she asked the weasel what she should gain by the transaction, and having been faithfully promised the eye-picking out of the first twelve young rabbits he should catch, she at once consented to go into the business. The idea of the two confederates was to create in the first place a coldness between the dog and cat by means of inducing the couple already mentioned to show greater favor to one than the other. Here, however, rose another difficulty. How could either weasel or magpie obtain access to a man and woman, or in any shape exercise an influence over their conduct and actions? The idea was so preposterous that they had to give it up. Then came the question whether they could not persuade either the cat or dog to do something which would offend and annoy the other, either by being opposed to his feelings and prejudices, or being actually unpleasant and disagreeable. If they could only settle on something of this kind, it did not appear so impossible to carry out the plan. The weasel need not be seen in the matter, and would incur no such personal danger as that to which he might have been exposed by any scheme which entailed his actual communication with the enemy. The thing must be done by the magpie, who, seated upon the roof of the house or in an adjacent tree, could converse with either cat or dog without the smallest risk, and was sly and crafty enough to poison the minds of both. So it was agreed that this should be the course taken, and what was to be the precise form of the magpie's address will be speedily gathered from the story. The two innocent animals who were the object of this nefarious plot upon the part of creatures so vastly inferior to themselves were all the while quite unconscious of the conspiracy which was being hatched against them. They went on just the same and were as friendly as ever, nor was their harmony disturbed by the introduction into the household of a small poodle whom somebody gave to the mistress of the house 
and who rather amused them than otherwise by his curious antics and grotesque behaviour. He was a curious dog, and had some funny tricks, but old Jenny said that she never heard that there was so much against him, or that he had any concern in the wicked plot of the weasel and the magpie. Having fully determined upon the plan to be pursued, the crafty pair of rascals waited until they could hit upon a time when the cat and dog were not together. The opportunity soon occurred. One fine morning, the human occupier of the house, who labored under the strange, but among human beings, not uncommon delusion that the place and all that it contained belonged to him, went out for a walk in the country, accompanied, as was frequently the case, by Honest Rover. The sun was shining so brightly that Mrs. Effie thought that she had better make the most of it and get some fresh air at the same time, with no more exertion than was necessary. So she climbed quietly up on the window sill, stretched herself at full length thereupon, and basked luxuriously in the warm rays of the sun. Seeing her thus enjoying herself, the magpie flew leisurely into an apple tree which grew near the house, and began to chatter in a way which was certain to attract the cat's attention before long. After a little while, Effie began to wink and blink her eyes, move her ears against the woodwork on which she lay, and appear as if disturbed by the noise. Presently, she lifted up her head, shook it, and sneezed violently. "'Bless you, pussy,' immediately said the magpie from the apple tree. Effie looked at her in some surprise. Many thanks, she said, the more so, indeed, since I do not happen to have the pleasure of your acquaintance. More's the pity, replied the bird, but that is no reason why I should refrain from giving a civil blessing to the person who happens to sneeze, for you know well enough that if you sneeze three times without someone blessing you, evil is sure to follow within the week. Indeed, answered the cat, somewhat coldly, for she hardly approved of being addressed by a mere bird, and that, too, a perfect stranger in such a familiar manner. Indeed, I am sure you are very kind. And she laid her head calmly down again upon the window sill. But the magpie was not to be daunted, and determined not to lose the opportunity which she had so carefully sought. Although you don't know me, continued she, which is not surprising, considering that you move in high circles, whilst I am only, as one may say, a humble drudge against the inferior parts of creation. It does not follow, madame, that I am not well acquainted with you, and have long wished to obtain your friendship. The beauty of your fur, the elegant shape of your body, the graceful action with which you move, and above all, the sweetness of your voice, which I have sometimes been fortunate enough to hear at night, have all made an impression upon me which will not easily be removed. I only wish I might know you better. As the bird spoke, she hopped from twig to twig of the apple tree until she came within an easy speaking distance of Effie and lowered her voice so as to make it less harsh and more impressive in conversation. Now, cats, as is well known to the attentive student of natural history, are by no means averse to flattery. It has sometimes been said that the same is true of women, but this is by no means fair as a general description of the latter, 
many of them cordially disliking it, and taking it as anything but a compliment, when men bespangle them with empty flattery, instead of carrying on sensible conversation and treating them like reasonable beings. But it is undoubtedly true of cats. Three things they can never resist. Cream, scratching their heads, and flattery. And as the magpie had no cream, and forbore to attempt scratching the cat's head for reasons of her own, she fell back, as we have seen, upon flattery. Effie listened, it must be confessed, with pleasure, and drank in the words of the magpie as greedily as if they had been inspired by the undoubted spirit of truth. As a matter of fact, her elegance of body, beauty of fur, and gracefulness of action might all have been fairly conceded to be matters of opinion, in which many would have agreed with the magpie. But as to the beauty of her voice, Anybody who has ever lain awake at night and listened to a concert of cats upon adjacent roofs will be inclined to stop his ears at the bare recollection of it, and to confess that the magpie must have well known that she was telling a, well, taradiddle. Strange to say, however, the allusion to her voice touched and pleased Effie more than anything else in the magpie's speech, and to confess that the magpie must have well known that she was telling a, well, a terrydiddle. Strange to say, however, the allusion to her voice touched and pleased Effie more than anything else in the magpie's speech, and this the cunning bird had fully expected. She knew cat nature well, which differs but little from human nature in this respect, that people very often fancy themselves to possess some talent or virtue in which they are, as a matter of fact, deficient, and not unfrequently, whilst priding themselves upon the fancied possession, neglect to cultivate and develop some other quality which they really have, and which might be made more useful to themselves than others. So Effie was proud of her voice, where there was nothing to be proud of, and extremely pleased to hear it praised by the magpie whom she instantly set down in her mind as an evidently respectable and well-informed bird, and one whose acquaintance it might be well to make. Without lifting her head, however, or disturbing the position of her body, which was so placed as to get as much sun as possible, she replied in a languid tone of voice, "'You are really kind, Madame Magpie, and I am far from wishing to decline the acquaintance you offer.' The magpie broke in at once, in a quick chatter, her words tumbling one over another, as if they could not get fast enough out of her beak. "'Oh, how good and kind and nice and polite and generous and affable and altogether charming you are! I have often watched you sunning on the window sill, or strolling about the gardens, or looking out for mice, or amusing yourself in one way or another, and I have always looked and longed and hoped and wished and wondered if I might make so bold as to speak to such a grand, ladylike, beautiful, queenly creature. And when I've heard your voice, I've often said to myself, here's music and melody and taste and feeling and harmony and everything that is delightful in sound. And if the lady would only learn singing, though little learning it is she wants, and take it up as a profession, how happy the world and everybody in it would be made and what's so pleasant as to make people happy with the good gifts we have, and who has more than she? As the magpie rattled on, Effie felt more and more pleased, and became still more strongly convinced than before that the bird was a superior creature, who had well used her opportunities, and possessed opinions which were entitled to great weight. 
Meantime, the weasel, who was listening to the conversation from an old rat's hole in which he had hidden hard by, was fit to kill himself with laughter when he heard the flattery of his ally, and how the cat took it all in. The latter now raised not only her head, but her body, and sat up upon the window ledge, looking with a friendly glance at the old bird in the tree. Really, she said in a rather affected tone, really, you think too well of me, you do indeed, but now you speak of it. I have, so my friends say at least, something of a voice, and have often thought of cultivating it more than I have hitherto done, but all are not of the same opinion, and I know that my friend Rova, the dog, thinks differently. Here the magpie quickly interposed, Oh, the jealousy of this wicked world, and of them dogs in particular, to hear that black, ugly, shaggy animal howl at the moon, or what not, of a night. I declare if it isn't enough to drive one crazy, and for such an animal as that to think anything but good of your lovely, sweet, tuneful, angelic notes, tis really shocking to think he should do so. But envy and meanness, my dear creature, and malice and jealousy, was ever in the hearts of dogs. Forgive me that I should say so, knowing as how you live in the same house and bear with him as you do. These words rather gave Effie a new idea of her situation, but as they were evidently intended to be complimentary to herself, though at her friend's expense, she listened to them with complacency. You must not blame my friend, she demurely answered, because he has not such a voice as mine. Few have such, as I think I may say without being suspected of vanity, and I have no reason to think that he is either mean or envious. True, he does not evince the same pleasure in my notes as that which you so kindly express, but this is merely a matter of taste. Ah, you dear, kind, good, charitable creature, rejoined the magpie. It is so like you to take the best and most pleasant view of whatever anybody else says or does, but never mind if the dog don't like it. Others do, and for my part, I should like to hear you play and sing all day and all night long. As for playing, returned the cat, I do not pretend to do that. In fact, I have never learned and have always been accustomed to trust my natural voice without any accompaniment. Never learned to play? cried the magpie in a voice of astonishment. Dear me, dear me, what a pity! I have so often heard good singers like you speak of the pleasure of being able to accompany oneself, and I am sure you could play if you liked. Now I have a neighbor who plays the violin in the most delightful manner, and what is more, he gives lessons upon that charming instrument. A very few lessons from him, and I am sure you would play so well that the whole neighborhood would flock to hear you. Really, said Effie, this sounds very tempting. I have always felt that one ought to cultivate one's talents and make the most of the gifts which nature has given us. Your words are well worth consideration. And she mused for a few moments, purring all the while in a contented and self-satisfied tone. The magpie, who had now brought the conversation to the very point she desired, according to the plan agreed upon with the weasel, began to press the matter at home to the cat telling her that she was wronging herself, as well as all the other animals, and not making her talents of more avail to them, and taking advantage of the opportunity which now offered. The musical neighbor of whom she had spoken turned out to be Honest John, the hare, 
and although his services were in great requisition, the magpie said, she was sure that she should be able to secure them for so distinguished a person as the cat, provided that she would consent to take lessons. After a little more talk, Mrs. Effie decided to allow the magpie to sound the hair upon the subject, and appointed another meeting upon the following day in order to discuss the matter further. Then the magpie, having done a good morning's work and successfully laid the train by which she hoped to carry out her plot with the weasel, flew chuckling off, whilst the weasel stole silently away and occupied himself on his own affairs. End of Part 1 of Chapter 4 of Uncle Joe's Stories